Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is all of it on WNYC. I'm Allison Stewart. All this week, we are looking at some of the exciting work of the year, and we have arrived at art. It was a year that included a woman who didn't get her due until her later years. That's Alice Neal. Two museums in two cities opening companion shows simultaneously. That would be the Whitney and the Philadelphia Museum of Art collabing on Jasper John's Mind Mira. Fashion taking center stage at the Brooklyn Museum with the Dior Show, and a lot of galleries providing intimate shows for underrepresented artists. We'll be talking about two of those big shows a little later on. Adam Pendleton's Who is Queen at MoMA, and Jasper John's Mind Mirror, which is currently at the Whitney. But first, let's talk to New York Magazine's senior art critic and columnist, Jerry Saltz. His latest for Vulture is a year-end rundown of this year's notable art exhibitions. Jerry, welcome back to All of It. Hey, it's great to be with you again, Allison. Your article about the best of in art of the year, or some of the most notable, will say, you said the art world has changed forever, but New York galleries still rule. Why do galleries still rule? Well, first of all, after the pandemic, the galleries proved beyond a shadow of a doubt even though I doubted that it could be done, that they could not only survive but thrive by staying flexible, creative. Tribeca is sort of burgeoning and getting bigger, while the gallery spaces themselves are getting smaller. So you see these one- and two-person operations finding a way to get around and get through. At the same time, if I may go on, If I were to nominate one person as the person or concept of the year, I would name paradox. On the one hand, you have the sort of Amazonization of the art world. It's huge. It's global. Every single person knows about this part or that part. Mega galleries, which uh, the sun never sets on, and art fairs are sort of the new fulfillment centers if you will, the kind of every uh, everything stores where money arrives in great, great quantities, obscene, grotesque quantities. And because during the pandemic, people that were rich got richer. But the paradox of all this is the money that is spent in this new art world is not just being spent on white, straight, male artists that for whatever reasons, even if it's trying to like consciousness cleanse or do self-therapy or to prove they're liberal, all of this money has started buying massive amounts of art by artists of color and women. And I have to say, in my lifetime, and I'm 70 now, I have never seen this happen to this degree and with this bizarre whiplash paradox of some of the worst things sponsoring some of the best things. What a year. And the galleries adapted. 
Well, let's talk about the major institutions. There are changes have been made. Which of the changes do you think are going to be long-lasting, and what change do you think is of the moment? Well, the moment and the lasting is you and I, no one listening to us could even imagine a big biennial of only white artists or mainly male. It just isn't something you would even think about is possible. On the other, you can't imagine schedules that are only, again, white male. The point being that even if mediocre work is being shown, it's the same amount of better or worse mediocrity than has always been shown. We're just seeing more than half of the story that was never seen before, and institutions cannot go back. Galleries, my guess is, will not go back. What this means is we're living possibly in the most exciting period of art history ever, insofar as it's finally being rewritten. We saw it in music over the last century and a half. We saw it in literature with artists, uh, writers of color, uh, uh, musicians of color, actually changing the culture. And not to be too essentialist, it almost makes me wonder Maybe that will happen in the art world, too. Just as my people, the Jews, somehow, with being so messed up and so oppressed, managed to create an amazing entertainment and, uh, industry in the beginning of the 20th century, just so perhaps women and artists of color will make this sort of epic, tremendous change in culture finally in the visual arts, or rather, finally have it be seen. I don't mean to gush, but the point you just said is we can't go back, and we can't. It's not possible. So mm -hmm. let the bad art and the good art begin. My guest is Jerry Salt, senior art critic and columnist for New York Magazine. We're talking about some of the most notable art of the past year. On your list at number 10 is Metro Pictures Gallery, which actually closed for good this month after 41 years. And you call this gallery one of the ground zeros of the gigantic explosion that was the 1980s art world. And you add that for a while you thought you weren't cool enough to visit. What was so important about Metro Pictures Gallery? I mean, that is real radicality. When you know you can't go into the back room with <laughs> this or that artist, or this gallery is too cool for you, what they did coming into the 80s, where there was no money in the 70s, and while there was graffiti art exploding on the streets, and neo-expressionist painting, so two forms of highly expressive, mainly painterly art, Metro Pictures went the other way, showing artists like Cindy Sherman, for example, showing more women who used the devalued tool of the camera. Mm -hmm. And they began showing more photographic work, more photographic work by women, more conceptual, uh, cooler art. And it was smart art, and a lot of the theory that we either now love or make fun of came through this gallery. When you went to that gallery, you were challenged. And so, in a way, they did change art history. And is it bad that they closed? Not necessarily. Everybody had a good run. 
in that space. They showed amazing artists, and they will be missed. I think they did not do the wrong thing by closing. So adieu and farewell, Metro Pictures. What you did changed the art world. And please correct me if I do not pronounce this name right. Winfred Rembert, or is it Rembert? I say Rembert, but I'm, you know, he lives from 1945 to 2021, mm. dies this year. When he's very young, he is a black artist that is almost lynched. He's actually tied up, and they begin to cut his genitals off. And for some reason, the lynch mob decides to stop, cut him down, so they can punish him more. Somehow he escapes. The car he escapes in ends up being caught. He ends up in prison for escaping his own lynching, attempted lynching. He works on the chain gangs. And somehow, at a much older age, I'm forgetting when, at 75, he begins making this almost psychedelic, figurative art of lots and lots of figures, like reaping the fields of the South, mm. the chain gangs, and he's tooling leather, another skill you are allowed to do in the prisons. And somehow the human spirit, as with, say, Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago, the human spirit on the worst conditions sometimes explodes again this word <laughs> into utter visionary creativity and it's fantastic that he's being discovered finally and that show is actually still up at Fort Gansevoort. Uh, and his New York Times obit is something that I think people should read. It's really quite something. My guest is Jerry Salt, senior art critic and columnist for New York Magazine. We're talking about some of the memorable art of 2021. You have a contemporary Indian artist on here, Gauri Gill, at number two. She's in her early 50s. The exhibit is called A Time to Play New Scenes from Acts of Appearance. And here are some of the words used to describe it. Retinal witchcraft and intellectual alchemy. <laughs> uh, this photographer, born uh, in Indian, living there, um, works in very small villages, Allison, and works with, instead of like most people, the great, great Diane Arbus, who in a way is a predator, always waiting, mm. right? Like a lion, waiting, striking fast and then resting long and striking again. Uh, this artist works with the community, so it's a group mind, if you will, asking the people that live there to make masks, to uh, draw and paint on walls, and so they collaborate together on images that look very surreal. You might have uh, three children wearing bizarre monster masks while they're traveling on a bicycle. And yet, this is post-colonial, sort of coming into your own autonomy, and again, giving people voice. I think she's one of the best photographers in the world today. Shows at James Cohen, uh, right down on in Tribeca, and you can go see. And the work doesn't cost a bloody fortune. <laughs> 
for God's sake, nobody can afford any of this art anymore. So I would tell everybody listening there, oh, I want in. You can get in. You're just not going to buy the same 55 famous names that Mm -hmm. the 155 collectors have always bought. You're out of that game. As are museums. They can't afford any of those paintings. Fine. We'll take everything else. Take your doubloons elsewhere. Spend them elsewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I did want to ask you about, you have someone on your list who uh, I recognize as part of the Harlem Renaissance, Beaufort Delaney. Wow. Beaufort Delaney, if you don't know this name, write it down. Again, I pronounce it Beaufort, but that's me. He comes to... Uh, 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 from the South to New York on the actual day of the 1929 Depression. He walks from downtown to Central Park. He takes a nap on a bench. His, His clothes and his shoes are stolen. He walks up to Harlem and begins the life of being an artist. He paints portraits. He painted the very young James Baldwin, mm-hmm. who the two had a, they were both gay. They didn't sleep together as far as we know. Delaney probably loved him. And uh, Baldwin saw uh, Delaney as something as a father figure. Over the years, Delaney made a kind of uh, portrait of New York in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. He lived downtown and was gay. So on the one hand, he's shut out of the Harlem uh, uh, straight community. And on the other, he's still an outsider in the Bohemia of the West Village. I am sure you're saying it correctly, and I am not. Because you were a senior I, art critic and columnist know. for New York Magazine. <laughs> well, it's so funny. <laughs> Sometimes you see people's names and you read them for years but then you never have to say them out loud. <laughs> That's me. In every French novel, I have no idea what name I'm reading. <laughs> I just say a bunch of consonants and hate the French language. Let's talk about a, a young African-American painter, Jennifer Packer. I have been wanting to go see this show at the Whitney. Tell me, tell me why I need to see Jennifer Packer's show. We all need to see Jennifer mm-hmm. Packer because while many artists are making the world safe for portraiture, and this is having big pluses, there's minuses too where it's becoming a bit of generic where you see one figure sitting in one place. Packer, instead of taking just straight out of cubism, is sort of combining a more abstract style, putting black bodies into space interiors that get much more dreamy. She might make washes that change into a bed with somebody lounging, and next to that might be a picture from their past. And you really begin to get a narrativity, as the brainiacs say, but nothing is happening. It's a form of portraiture done in a painterly way that escapes just being, I don't know, just another picture of another person. She's worth seeing. She works well on a large scale and sometimes very small. She's, I don't remember how old she is. I think at middle scale, I'm not positive, not positive. Mm -hmm. But if she can nail the big sort of 
large-scale painting. This is an important artist to watch. She's already quite known and respected as the Whitney show shows. And one other thing, Allison, while you're there, there are two other Amazeball shows, uh, Early Women in Abstraction in America, where they were mm-hmm. completely overlooked, and downstairs, maybe the last art star that will ever exist, um, unless people count Banksy and Beppel, um, it would be Jasper Johns, who mm-hmm. changed art history as we know it. If you can get out and aren't too afraid of COVID, as I am, um, I recommend spend the day at the Whitney, maybe, then go home and get a test. Do you know what I did, Jerry? I not only went to see Jasper Johns in New York two weekends ago, I went to Philadelphia to see Boom. the companion show at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and it was I so great to see both. It. And did you like both? They're very different. The Whitney show is big and splashy and jazz hands. And the <laughs> Philadelphia Museum of Art is, is intimate and into the catalog and the deep cuts. So wow. it's really kind of interesting. It was, I, I, it, I recommend it as a day trip if you feel comfortable going to Philly to see, see that show and seeing the Whitney show. It was, it was pretty great. I was glad I did it. Everybody listen to Allison right there, and I've got to use jazz hands in my review. I'm stealing your work. Go for it. My guest is Jerry Saltz, senior art critic and columnist for New York Magazine. We're talking about some of the great art from the past year. So number one on your list, I remember you came on the show, and you said, this is the show of the year. So this is a long time ago. You are a man of your word. You stick to your guns. Alex Neal at the Met. People come first. What was so special about this? How can we deny this painter um, any longer, who is our Balzac? That is somebody that painted, if you will, the American human comedy. She lives uptown her whole life. She experiences the death of, of a child very early on. Her other child is essentially kidnapped. She has nervous breakdowns. She's painting up in her apartment in Harlem and later in the Upper West Side. And over the course of time begins, again, portraiture, this odd uh, genre that people don't think holds a lot, and that may be why women artists in particular, artists of color, move in on things that aren't overpriced, oversaturated. And Neil, in a figurative, quasi-smushy, awkward, almost Goya-like, ugly, sometimes thick paint, gives us the likes of poets misfits, bohemians, Andy Warhol stripped to the waist, exhibiting his scars, and her whole life was passed over. The whole lifetime, until much later, at about the age of 70, people wake up, and that's what feminism finally did in the 1970s, and said, hello, there's an artist living right uptown again, and now... I think she is possibly among, if not the greatest painter of the 20th American a painter of the 20th century. And one other thing, Allison, people, including me, 
waited in lines to see her because of the humanity Mm -hmm. she delivers. Nobody who has ever lived painted pregnant women or mothers better than Neil. No one gets flesh of my flesh like this artist. I highly recommend her. Jerry Saltz, a senior art critic and columnist for New York Magazine. I'm happy to say he's friend of the show. Jerry, thank you so much for being with us. Have a safe, healthy, happy new year. Happy new year and the same to you, Allison. Keep up the great work. There's a lot going on right now. Mounting economic inequality, threats to democracy, environmental disaster, the sour stench of chaos in the air. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of WNYC's On the Media. Want to understand the reasons and the meanings of the narratives that led us here? And maybe how to head them off at the pass? That's On the Media's specialty. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts.